Welcome to an ADT specialty podcast on ethical issues related to informed consent and informed authorization for xenotransplantation trials. I'm Carrie Thiessen, a transplant surgeon and bioethicist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I was an AJT editorial fellow in the 2021 to 2022 year. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Robert Montgomery and Dr. Mohammed Muhideen as guests to the AJT podcast. Dr. Montgomery is a professor of surgery and director of NYU's Lango and Transplant Institute. He and his team conducted the 2021 preclinical study that implanted a pig kidney into two recently deceased individuals. Dr. Mohideen is a professor of surgery and the director of the Cardiac Xenotransplantation Program at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. In January 2022, he and his colleagues transplanted a genetically engineered pig heart into a recipient who died two months post-transplant. The impressive scientific and clinical innovations that enable these studies have been discussed extensively elsewhere. As you know, xenotransplantation also raises multiple ethical and policy issues related to patient selection, study design, regulatory oversight, and moral obligations to animals. And today, we're going to focus our conversation on the process of informed consent and informed authorization to participate in xenotransplant studies. Before we begin, I'd like to make a note about terminology. We'll be using both the terms informed consent and informed authorization. I think we're all familiar with the term informed consent. Informed authorization is a term that is used to describe a family's decision to allow their recently deceased loved one to take part in a clinical trial. So I'd like to begin by asking a first question. Given that you were engaging in uh, novel, uh, decedent, preclinical, and first-in-human studies, what unique or additional elements uh, did your IRBs require as part of your informed consent process? So first of all, thanks, Carrie, for having me today. And I think this is a an important discussion and I'm very excited about participating in it. So I, I think that, you know, the the process that of informed authorization, you know, that we had to work towards for studies in the recently deceased is quite different than what you know Muhammad will be talking about. And so just to kind of give you a sense for what that took, it it did require a a new pathway of donation. And you know, we're all familiar with uh donating uh organs um after one's death. And also uh, donating organs for the purpose of research. Um, both of those are things that are quite familiar. Um, they've been normalized. Most people have a sense for that option in terms of end of life planning. And maybe many people have, you know, upfront made some sort of a declaration, whether it's formal or informal with their families about how they feel about that. Whole body donation is a new concept. And, and it really, you know, involves um, a really different process. And so as far as, you know, what, what went into planning that first uh, genetically modified uh, pig kidney transplant into a, a decedent, it is a strange kind of, uh, you know, circumstance that falls somewhere in between a, a lot of, you know, our normal, what we consider sort of our normal regulatory pathway. So the FDA and the IRB are in the business of regulating, you know, 
subjects, living subjects in um, research studies and do, do not have, you know, the purview of, of regulation for decedents um, in research trials. So um, there, the, the FDA was was concerned about a few aspects of of what would be involved. Mainly, how we would dispose of the body after the study concluded, and any tissues, uh, in, including the xenograft. And they referred us to our Department of Health here in New York to to really, you know, go through that process of them understanding what we were planning on doing and having them provide guidance. Our IRB recommended that we create a new entity that they would help guide us through. It's called the short is that we created is called RDOC. And basically it's a committee that oversees subjects, decedent subjects in clinical trials. So the that body was created again with the guidance of our IRB. And then there you know were protocols and the protocols were judged just like IRB protocols there there was the you know the scientific merit of the study there was um protection you know for the interests of the decedent as well as you know other people that uh, might be exposed to the decedent because of the concern about zoonosis risks. And so they took, you know, very much a 360 degree look at, at everything that we were doing and what we were planning, including, you know, the authorization, the informed authorization process. And so it looked a lot like an IRB document in the end. It had all the same components. But obviously, you know, there was no long-term follow-up. The, um, you know, the the study had a clear uh, termination, and 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 beyond that, there was just the concern about again disposal of the body tissues and any risk to individuals who were involved. And so the process kind of went like this: our OPO, which had to be very involved in this. W- would inform us when they had a decedent who had the, you know, inclusion and exclusion criteria for the study where their organs could not be placed for transplantation for whatever reason, either because of quality or because of other um, comorbidity or infections or cancer, or things like that. And um, then after, you know, that for that standard pathway of, you know, what happens at the end of life care and, and the involvement of the organ procurement organization concluded, they would say to the family, we're very sorry, your loved one, you know, will not be able to donate their organs. But there is this other opportunity if you are interested in research. And they would kind of introduce uh, very broadly the idea, and then we would become involved at that point. Um, they would contact us and we would present this opportunity to them, which really was an opportunity in the sense that those who participated, the families that participated, you know, all felt that this gave them some kind of a, you know, silver lining to what it was a, a horrible, you know, happening in their lives and, and that had initially 
you know, held the promise of maybe organ donation, but then even that was dashed. And now they, you know, had something in front of them that could potentially have an even greater impact. Thank you very much for sharing that. In that process of either the OPO initiating a conversation with the families or in your research team's conversations with them, did the families raise any concerns or questions that uh, you had not anticipated or found you know, especially interesting? I mean, I, I would say this. The first couple of families that I spoke to, I realized that describing something that they had never heard of before, again, that wasn't in any way normalized, you know, was difficult. And I really felt that, you know, the first couple of encounters were not, you know, the, the way that I had hoped they, that they would be in terms of how the ease with which I was able to present this very complex idea in a, in, in a way that they would have some relationship to quickly. And because decisions are made very fast in, in this. So what we ended up doing was um, after a couple of these, we, we went through a whole process of role playing and and we would essentially bring in people volunteers off the street and try to explain this to them in in a more efficient way and so i did many of these and and then had them critique you know how it was done so it, it was i would say that was probably the most surprising thing initially was you know somebody who who does has been doing this for 30 years you know, not exactly this, but in this business, you know, I, I struggled a bit to really be able to explain this in a succinct way that didn't trigger, you know, emotions or fantastical ideas, but really just was able to really get the information across in a way that they could relate to. How many families did you um, ultimately wind up talking to before uh, you identified the uh, individual who was participating in the study? So, um, you know, it's gotten much, uh, the, the acceptance rate for this has increased. So we've done four total, two kidney and two heart. Um, and I've spoken to probably 20 families. And I would say probably for the first one, it was like somewhere around eight or 10 when we were able to get consent from the first family. So you can see that it became much more likely that, you know, a consent would be obtained as time went on. And in the last family of the decedent knew about this concept. And actually, when they found out their loved one couldn't donate organs, you know, said, well, it, there, I've heard about that something else that, that might be able to be uh, available. So that, you know, was kind of what we had hoped for that, you know, and one of the reasons that we did this in a very public way, uh, you know, as we uh, did the first uh, couple of these um, was to really get this, you know, news out, this information that um, this is another pathway to don donation. Thank you very much. Dr. Mahita, I don't know if you uh, want to share any things that may have been similar or different in your experience at the University of Maryland. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, the we didn't prepare for this emergency use, but we were trying to getting ourselves prepared for, for you know, the xenotransplantation clinically. 
So, I mean, you know, uh, I've been giving talks in uh, in live, uh, you know, public uh, meetings uh, um, and, and trying to get, gauge their opinion about it. And, you know, I was trying to see what kind of, um, you know, response they have. And that uh, kind of helped uh, when we approached Mr. Bennett also. You know, the, uh, we have this, as you know, uh, heart failure team who have been identifying some patients, but, but with this patient, they, they were, they were pretty confident that this is the right patient. And, you know, when they, when they approached us, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Griffith and I, you know, you know thought about it and uh, for, for a few days and say that, you know, okay, is, is he the right person? And then, then you know, we, we just, uh, got, I mean, had a discussion with the patient, a verbal discussion, and, uh, uh, and uh, explained to him what are, what are the, uh, his options and, you know, and, uh, and whether or not he will agree to something like this. And, uh, and, and he uh, seems like that he, he understood what we were talking about. I mean, and, and, and he, he gave uh, his verbal consent and that, that kind of, you know, encouraged us to approach the FDA and, you know, to get the feeling and uh, that, you know, whether they will allow us and going back and forth with FDA, you know, it was a 10 day process. I mean, since it was a compassionate care, they were obligated to reply to us quickly and uh, we were um, obligated to move fast. Uh, you know, they, it was like back and forth uh, communication with on phone, you know, emails and, you know, I mean, the, the application was small, but they, they came back with, uh, with, you know, tons of questions that we had to re respond to. And, and one of the main question was the consent, right? So, so with that, um, you know, uh, the entire IRB uh, commi uh, committee was involved. Uh, they they expedited the process. I mean, usually the process takes long, but in this case, patient didn't have time, so that uh, the the ethics committee came along, and you know they so so consent was drafted with the cons with with the help of you know multiple you know departments, you, uh, IRB, our um, you know animal care committee also the patient in because you know the uh, there was a pig involved in there also. Uh, then, then uh, you know, different. Uh, the, we were using the drug that was not, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, available for human use. So, so that was a factor. So, so there were, and we were using a hard box, which was another another factor. So everything, you know, every department had to pitch in. Then, then our legal went through in details. Uh, uh, about it, and and finally a four-page, uh, you know, um, constant document was drafted that that had almost everything in it. And and in the meantime, when when this being done, you know, the families have been consulted, and you know, and the, but the major decision, I mean, the uh, the the patient had four psychiatric evaluations, so two of them internally, and then then uh, you know. Um, our ethics department suggested, you know, we should get uh, some outside uh, consultations. So we got some outside consultations also. And finally, he, he was deemed, uh, his mental capacity was uh, deemed, uh, uh, you know, suitable for giving this uh, this consent. And, and when this consent was offered to him and explained to him, it seemed like that he understood every every word of it. And, you know, he 
he himself signed on it and he himself uh, you know agreed to everything uh you know um, you must have heard this um, uh, in our talks uh, that you know he said that will i be doing oinkoin you know those kind of uh, uh, that that shows us that he he understood what uh, he and he also made made uh, the statement that you know because we were very clear about that you know we don't know what will be the consequence of this right so i mean that that everybody in the uh in his family and him he himself was was absolutely clear that you know uh, this is an experimental process uh, nobody has done this before we don't know uh whether he was going to survive uh, from the surgery uh, or you know how long he's going to survive so we we didn't make any promises and he completely understood and in fact he he said that you know if by this you know somehow you know the the you know the community can benefit that 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 will be a great service from him so so I mean, you know the, the um, so I, but but in this case um, compared to what uh, um, uh, dr montgomery described you know similar process was fo followed as we would do in a, a in an allo transplant but uh, but at, at an expedited um, you know um, rate because uh, uh, you know we we had very little time that uh, uh, the the whole concept of doing this was to uh, save this patient's life and, um, and 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 that's how we proceeded thank you for sharing that and you know it's impressive that you and your team were able to get through all of the FDA and IRB processes in such an expedited fashion did mr bennett or his family have any questions or concerns that you weren't expecting uh, when you're going through the informed consent process or uh, that you thought were especially interesting? I mean, Mr. Bennett, yeah, he, 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 he didn't ask any specific questions about it. I mean, you know, we, because we, we made our consent so thorough that, you know, we, we did explain to him about, you know, the, the zoonotic diseases that, you know, it's, it's a possibility. We don't know about it. And, you know, and then, uh, and, and, and the, the family also knew about it beforehand. And, um, and they also knew that, that, you know, they're, I mean, there, there, there is no guarantees with this, but, uh, uh, so, I mean, unexpectedly, they, they were, they were very, uh, you know, uh, calm about it and you know went went along with it uh, without um, much uh, resistance or anything so i mean they were very very cooperative throughout i mean you know every decision we made uh, we had consultation with the family uh, he had two sisters and a son and his family and a daughter so they were all involved in every decision we made uh, all along uh, during his uh, 60 days survival Thank you. I think the next question is for you, Dr. Montgomery. How does your experience as a transplant recipient affect, if at all, your approach to the process of obtaining informed consent or informed authorization in this kind of research? You know, I, I think to the extent that, you know, I've been through the process of transplantation, you know, myself, you know, it's a bit more real to me and, and you know, thinking about what families go through and what you know individuals go through as they're on this roller coaster ride that's you know is organ transplantation where there's a lot of unknowns and and there's uncertainty about whether you're going to uh you know uh survive that i think 
provides a, a level of personal connection. I think that resonates with families that, you know, this is not just something I do. It's something I've lived. And, um, you know, I, I think it, 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 in, in terms of the talking to the families and particularly those who went on to consent and then I've had additional contact with, you know, through the process, I felt they've had that sort of connection and they've asked me about my transplant and, you know, what kind of, what my life looks like and, you know, what I'm able to do and not do and that sort of thing. So it's a little bit of, um, you know, a kind of, kind of a, a personal, um, you know, connection that I think is, is calming in a way for, for the families. You know, I, I, I've had one or two of my colleagues ask me whether I thought it was an ethical issue that I'm involved in this kind of work, having had a transplant. Uh, I mean, I, I think, you know, others can discuss that. I, I, I don't see that. I mean, I, I, I feel that it ha it certainly is something that has been a driving force, you know, in my life and certainly how sick I had to get before I became, you know, a candidate for a heart transplant. And then that time that I spent in the ICU waiting for an organ certainly focused my mind on the, 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 what I believe is, you know, a failing paradigm that we're in transplantation, we're operating under, which, you know, is that, you know, somebody has to die for somebody else to live. And this source of, you know, organs is, is both inadequate, terribly inadequate in as much as only a third of the people who get listed for transplant actually get one and is very fragile. And, you know, I think there, there are a lot of um, different things that are happening right now that, you know, put a, a lot of what we do in question in terms of whether we're going to continue to have even the inadequate source of organs that we have. And that uh, it, I feel very strongly that we need another way forward and xenotransplantation, bioartificial organs, something that, you know, doesn't require a human organ is, you know, I think not only just to meet what the, the, this huge gap we have between supply and demand, but also just to have the assurance that we'll have source, a source of organs, even, you know, an adequate source. So, yes, it's a major driving force, you know, for me, um, in my life and my energy. But uh, I mean, I think that is, you know, not, um, something that, you know, is, uh, it is in a way a conflicting thing. I, I think it actually should, I have a, a different view of this thing that perhaps is broader. I, I'm, you know, I'm not like a, someone who is, only invested from one angle. I'm invested from, you know, many different angles. Um, I've got children who, you know, are, are probably going to need a transplant at some point. I've had family members who, you know, potentially could have been um, donors if things had ha happened a little differently. You know, I, I think it's, it's something that's just very real to me. It's not a, you know, just something I do when I go into work every day. So we'll let others judge, but um, that's that's how I see it.
Well, thank you very much for sharing um, that personal insight and experience. And yeah, yeah, I would just like to add something to what uh, Bob just said. You know, uh, I mean, I was afraid uh, uh, of the reaction to what we did, right? So, but um, fortunately, the response was overwhelmingly positive, especially from from patients who are waiting for a heart transplant, and also from from uh, from relatives who who have lost some uh, a loved one. They they said why have you not tried this before right and you know the patients you know are continuously volunteering themselves we said that you know i've been told that you know uh, we don't have the uh, i don't have a chance of getting an organ you know so so i mean could could i volunteer myself so so i mean you know i, I was overwhelmed by by the this kind of response i mean you know so so uh, i think uh, you know there is a lot of awareness now in uh, among the, the uh, you know the, the journal public and you know they understand that this is a valid you know uh, I've, I've spent all my life doing that uh, just because i believe in it that uh, that this is a valid option you know and we we can you know um, uh, take it to the clinic and you know help um, you know millions of people throughout the world i mean patients feel they don't have you know, an advocate who has skin in the game, you know, like they don't feel they have a voice. They feel frequently like all these other people are making these decisions for them and their voice isn't being heard. So, you know, in general, the response I get from patients and from families is very positive that, you know, you, you know, finally we have somebody who understands what we're going through. So, you know, I agree that the public response to these, you know, these efforts um, from from NYU and the University of Maryland have, have almost universally been positive. It's been shocking, really, I guess, in a way we, you know, worried a lot more, I think, than was justified. But I mean, that's always good um, anyway. But I'd like to shift gears a little bit and talk about the implications of these kinds of studies for non-patients. So, Dr. Pledine, I understand that uh, members of your clinical team were asked to provide informed consent to uh, participate in caring for uh, Mr. Bennett. And could you clarify what the rationale was for seeking that informed consent? Yeah, I mean, so throughout our discussions with uh, with FDA and you know other you know agencies that throughout the world, uh, you know the the, the main concerns with you know transplantation has always been the transmission of uh, the unknown, right? So of uh, unknown you know zoonotic diseases, and you know one of those the viruses that have been identified for endogenous retroviruses, uh, they've been you know that although there is no evidence of them transmitting to any human uh, you know there's still there's a concern and and I, i'm i'm sure there's a valid concern you know we wanted all everyone who was coming in contact with mr bennett to understand that you know there the concern is out there fda wanted us to have a surveillance plan and 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 you know uh, we want uh, everyone to know uh, that there is a chance you know although uh, in my heart, I may not believe it, but but you know, just uh, uh, since it's out there and and it's been believed uh, by FDA to be, uh, you know, something we should follow. Uh, I had to inform everyone. I mean, at that time we were just 
focusing on proof, but but you know um, uh, we went a, a step forward, and you know people who were coming in uh, immediate contact with Mr. Bennett, we in fact collected their their blood also, so for future you know uh, evaluation. So so uh, I mean you know that the no matter you know whether the fear is real or not, but there is a there is you know uh, a fear that you know there there will there are some viruses that can cause they are they are not they are not harmful to pig but but they may cause uh, you know some kind of disease in humans so some you know that 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 was the rationale behind you know uh, and and I've been asked us to develop a surveillance uh, plan and and this uh, this this consent was part of that surveillance plan in uh, light of that concern do you think that clinical team members in other studies should be also asked to give informed consent to participate in patient care? Yeah, so this was like, you know, this was a, a very expedited process, right? So I think the IRB should take charge of that and, you know, maybe, you know, develop this kind of, um, once we have the permission to do clinical trials, you know, the IR, it should be IRB's decision to, to you know, develop all these kind of, uh, you know, uh, guidelines uh, and and then you know we we will be uh, we we are we will oblige them. You know. Also on this question of zoonotic transmission, uh, Dr. Montgomery, I know in your talk at the ATC this year you mentioned that your surveillance strategy extended to thinking about non-clinicians like the cleaning staff and the morticians who would be caring for uh, the bodies of the participants. What do you think should be done to inform these individuals of potential concerns of zoonotic disease transmission? Yeah, so you know we we developed a, a surveillance strategy. Um, you know, first thing to say too is that both of the pigs that that both we and and University of Maryland used did not have porcine endogenous retrovirus C. So you know that does uh, even further decrease the 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 risk. But you know there's still certainly a requirement for surveillance for that virus and for the you know the array of other possibilities. And that involves both you know the herd surveillance prior to the transplant, the you know the the final uh, studies that are done right before the organ is procured, and then what you do afterwards. So, you know, we had the opportunity, you know, with the decedent model to kind of take us a, a somewhat of a different approach in that we could be, you know, because with a with a living human, you know, it, it, it you have to be able to provide for things like rehabilitation, for you know, it, the, the focus is on getting the person better and, you know, back to their normal life. In the case of the decedent, we're, we're doing a study and we can keep that study very much localized to, you know, a isolation area with really very carefully monitored comings and goings of people. And so we know exactly who's been in contact with the decedent. So it's a different kind of thing. So we were able to to do it in a kind of a very stringent way in the beginning because you know obviously anytime you're starting something and you're doing the first few you you are going to take even extra precautions. And so since this was planned, you know, we've been doing we've been preparing for this for several years, which again is different 
from what Muhammad did, which was, you know, an ex expedited thing to try to save a patient's life, you know, we were able to kind of develop um, that surveillance strategy in a, uh, in a maybe more deeper kind of way or even more thoughtful. And so we did, you know, assign these different categories of risk and we did all the surveillance, the direct monitoring on the decedent. And then we, like Muhammad's group did, we, we archived blood from anyone who had direct contact with blood or body fluids. And then anyone who had sort of a more casual contact, you know, with the decedent fell into that low category where, you know, we would be able to locate that person if the high risk trigger, you know, sort of the canary in the coal mine trigger went off, which would then trigger, you know, the medium sort of risk individuals who have archived blood to undergo, you know, the testing. Um, and then the low risk people we could then contact um, and, and bring in. And everyone had to go through a educational process, like a, a slide deck that laid out what the risks were and what we were concerned about and that sort of thing. And it was all voluntary. That was, that's the other thing. We didn't, uh, we didn't do formal consent, except that the people who had to have their blood, you know, archived and drawn, um, had to get consent for that. And that third category of individuals, the housekeeping staff and the morticians, were they providing archived blood at all in the no. process? No. No. In our case, every every day, whoever enters Mr. Bennett's room had to sign off the consent on every day's basis. So, so them, no matter who who that is, a, a physician, nurse, or or a you know uh, uh, cleaning staff, they they all had to do that. I mean, we we kept a strict check on that. And like uh, like Bob said, we had uh, multiple training sessions for everyone who we expected to be involved, and um, and you know. Uh, our ICU director who conducted that uh, those those training sessions did a phenomenal job of you know informing everyone about it. And uh, I think this probably more applies more to situations like Dr. Mudin had. But do you think that it would be appropriate ever to seek informed consent from a patient's nuclear family members who may be exposed to risk of zoonotic disease transmission? Uh, yeah, I mean, so in our case, we did get uh, um, consent from their immediate family member, and you know, we, we, if Mr. Bennett had left, we were we had all the intention of following him through, uh, even if he was discharged and all, and and he was supposed to let us know if anyone he's coming in contact uh, intimately, right? So, I mean, uh, I mean, they did. I don't know about the compliance of that, but uh, but you know at least we had a plan to you know uh, and and he agreed to it uh, and because he he also said to us that you know if I show compliance and if I ever needed the uh, human heart would you reconsider right so 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 we we thought that he he would be more compliant in this case. So so you know uh, yes I mean and then the, and the family members. 
understood that and they, that they had to uh you know you know the, be uh, be able to provide you know any 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 blood or any 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 other information later on if if if, if something odd has uh, have been discovered just going back dr montgomery to the question about the that people in the last category um for surveillance were those individuals the housekeeping staff and the mortician were they also asked to review that educational material by uh, yeah, so they they had to you know undergo you know training about what exactly was involved and and what the known and unknown risks were. How did you prepare uh, your patients and their families for uh, the possibility of media attention and publicity? Yeah, I mean, so there there was a consent drawn for that purpose also, and uh, Mr. Bennett himself, you know, agreed to disclosing his name that's why we are taking his name instead of mr uh you know the, the, not using his name so uh i mean you know they because one of his goals uh, that he told us that was that if, even if he if he doesn't survive maybe this will benefit uh, others so so he wanted to somehow you know convey that you know he he uh, he uh, he opted for this with his own choice and you know that was the reason you know because n no one knew you know how long he'll live and all that so and the same thing with the, with his um, uh, with his family that they they also were aware that you know um, because they they followed him throughout 60 days with us and you know uh, they become more informed about what what's going on and you know his, his son is a nurse so not a nurse a physiotherapist so so has some knowledge so some you know that the, they all they all have were very uh well aware of uh you know the media interest and you know how important it is uh most of the time they they consulted our media relations before talking to media but um, but but uh, very few times they have done it individually also how about in terms of the decedent families, Dr. Montgomery, were there any issues that came up in terms of their exposure to the media? Yeah, so we, we did a consent process with um, each of the families because we thought that this would probably be of, um, you know, of great interest. And some of the families decided that they didn't want the, the decedent's names released or any details about you know, their cause of death or, and so, you know, obviously we honored th those desires and then others actually wanted to, uh, you know, potentially participate in any, you know, media interest. So we kind of presented the range of possibilities and then allowed them to make their personal decisions, including no attention at all. So mm -hmm. that was also part of it. Mm -hmm. And those individuals who elected to participate uh, in engagement with the media, did you have any sense that after that had occurred, they might have wished that they had chosen otherwise? So, I mean, uh, just to give you an example, so during Mr. Banner's funeral, you know, there was a lot of media attention, but uh, the family strictly wanted this to be a private event, and we we all respected that, and the entire media respected that. So, so even even later on, they they were approached by you know 
they still are continuously being approached by different uh, you know agents agencies but uh, but you know they they have been uh, very cooperative in that regard you know they uh, they with, with everything all the news about you know the, the cause of death and everything coming out you know they 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 always come back to us get uh, more information before before you know they they talk to media or anything so so i mean you know this is and of one right so uh, and um, we don't know how the others will will behave there but but this uh, this family was very very cooperative and they 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 um, they, they they respected the wishes of um, mr bennett also and 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 you know they they, they were very cooperative i mean i i think it's really important to you know to fully and and completely inform the family members because you know, it. You don't know where this is going to go, right? When and you know that unpredictability of what can happen once the media becomes involved really, I think, needs to be expressed. You know, to the family um, and also the magnitude uh, of the kind of invasiveness that is possible once you know a family agrees to having names released and things like this you know it's it's really it, it is something that is is difficult to f fully understand i think and and it really has to be you know carefully discussed um thinking to the next steps for xeno transplant i imagine that a multi-center study is somewhere in the future and how do you envision the informed consent and informed evaluation processes may need to adapt to a multi-center context. I mean, I think that has to be a uniform, you know, consent. Every every center who's uh, who's taking part in it has to agree on every single, uh, you know, point of it. And, uh, you know, it should be uniformly applied throughout. And it has to be a multi-center trial uh, moving forward. I agree with that. And I think, you know, both the FDA and the IRB are, you know, are, they're going to be very involved in that. It seems like one of the remarkable things about both your institutions is that they developed a lot of IRB and regulatory expertise rapidly to help manage these studies. Do you think that it makes sense for every institution that's participating in these kinds of trials to develop that own expertise at their institution? Or do you think that it would be more appropriate for there to be a centralized body or organization that is helping to manage these kind of ethical regulatory policy issues. I mean, in our case, it's, you know, it's kind of a, since it falls outside of, you know, sort of some of the normal pathways that we think about, you know, there was a fair amount of sort of having to, you know, pioneer new ways of uh, managing this. And, and I think that, you know, we, we have, uh, you know, kind of defined this to some extent in a way that will and has helped other people who are thinking about doing research in the recently deceased. And it's going to likely extend beyond xenotransplantation into other areas. And, you know, those who are, you know, interested, uh, I think we, we've been very cooperative and helpful and open about, you know, making what we've learned and um, have developed available to them. I think when it comes to living humans, there will be 
as I've mentioned, just a lot more clear guidance from the FDA, first of all. And then, you know, it, depending on how we develop, whether there's a common IRB or how, how we, you know, develop the structure of the trials and the informed consent, you know, it, it there will be a lot of uh, input. And as you may know that, you know, AJT has formed a group that is looking into the different guidelines for uh, for genotransplantation. Uh, ISH, ISHLT is doing the same, you know, similar thing and, and the international genotransplantation. Also, uh, you know, they've, they've already have this Jangsha communique and all that. Uh, so, I mean, you know, all these, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of responsibility on these, uh, uh, associations also to come up with a with a comprehensive plan that will help uh, guide our regulatory agencies also to to develop a, uh, some kind of consensus uh, plan uh, to go to move forward. Our final question: What advice can you provide on optimal ways to obtain informed authorization or informed consent for other researchers who plan to conduct xenotransplant studies or first in human studies? Of other kind. Well, I mean, I, I think, first of all, you know, it's important to understand, you know, what's happened before and how that informs, you know, the future. And and so things like this podcast, I, I think, are really helpful just to kind of get go go into the details of what has already been done. I think, you know, it is a process that's going to be iterative and will continually improve and maybe become even more focused in as much as I think we were kind of maximally concerned um, because it was the beginning of something new. And there will be some, you know, degree of normalization as this moves forward. And I think probably more of a consensus on what, you know, informed consent will look like and informed authorization and what needs to be in there and what doesn't need to be in there and who needs to get it. And, you know, it'll be, I think, more, you know, deliberate as we move forward. And there has been already, I mean, a lot of articles already out. People are commenting on it and, you know, uh, wants to, you know, us to add a few things or, you know, uh, want, want clarification on, you know, how things were done. So I think this is all will be very helpful in, in, in um, getting to that final, you know, uh, consent document. Yeah. And I think nothing's perfect in the beginning. And we're all, you know, part of our culture in medicine is learning and, and, and really looking at what we've done carefully. And then, you know, and, and, and being critical of that moving forward in, a, you know, in, in a way that is constructive and thoughtful. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for your time and your thoughtful comments and for doing all of this amazing work to move the field of transplant forward and to help our patients. One final note before we close, I'd like to thank Dr. Melissa Gordon, Dr. Jonathan Friedel, Dr. Dixon Kaufman, Dr. Josh Wabitsky and Dr. Rosalind Madden for their help developing this podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Thanks. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. 